Inhabit, September 22nd reading, Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. Chapter 3. Selfie Sticks, Spectacles, and Sepultures. The old city of Jerusalem was hemmed in about 500 years ago by massive limestone walls. Most of the city's sacred sites are inside. You enter through arched gateways, and inside, the cobbled streets are lined with shops and cafes. The scent lingers in my memory. The musty smell of ancient city, meat grilling over hot coals, sweet-smelling tobacco burning on a hookah, citrus fruits and pomegranates being pressed into juices. As you pass through the open-air shops, everything competes for your attention— Scarves and blocks of linen and quilts hanging in the doorways. Shelves lined with white ceramics, each hand-painted in tiny geometric patterns of blue and yellow. A crowd of old men hunched around a backgammon game, slamming pieces on the board with meaty fists. Shopkeepers try to catch your eye and wave you inside. The crowd is a cross-section of the Middle East, Jews and Arabs, Christians and Muslims, Orthodox men with thick beards and heavy black clothing, women in head coverings or her jobs, soldiers who look like mere teenagers pass, M16s draped over their shoulders. Police are everywhere. Loud scooters spewing exhaust weaving their way through the pedestrians. The Via Del Rosa the way of suffering that Jesus walked from a Roman garrison to Golgotha passes through the middle of this all of all of this narrow alleyway, alleyways and crowded streets lead to a doorway that opens up into the courtyard of the church of the holy sepulchre the site of both Golgotha and the empty tomb The courtyard is usually swarming with tourists and pilgrims. Tour guides wear headset microphones like Britney Spears with speakers on lanyards around their necks. They carry brightly colored little golf flags to rally their groups, and they recite scriptures about the history of the church in English, German, Korean, and more. The church itself is austere, gray stone, Blunt medieval arches. It originally, it was originally built in the fourth century, and it's been knocked down and restored several times over. Inside, a winding staircase leads to the shrine built around the spot where tradition holds the cross actually stood. The staircase is packed, and the line moves slowly. Anxious pilgrims push past while you wait. At the top, the shrine is ornate and gilded with candles burning everywhere. Lamps hang from the ceiling and let out a flickering light through amber and red glass. Priests direct traffic offering blessings. Pilgrims press in and line up to kneel at the spot where the cross stood to touch it, to bless themselves. I wonder what it must be like to be one of those priests, standing there for hours, several days, for hours a day, several days a week, managing the crowd like a ride operator at Epcot. 
On my first visit, I avoided the line and wandered toward the back, taking the whole scene in. I found myself near the exit with a perfect vantage to watch the faces of people as they left the altar. I'll never forget the face of a young Russian woman as she passed. She was beautiful, like a femme femme fatale in a Bond movie. She wore stark makeup and slickly styled her hair. Her companion matched her, looking like a Bond villain's henchman. He was huge and muscled, wearing a skin-tight white t-shirt and tattered jeans and heavy boots. Stone-faced, arm around her, he guided her through the crowd. She was falling apart, tears streaming, nose running, streaks of mascara running down her face. She gasped for air and weeped bitterly after touching the disc that marks the spot where Jesus died. I watched her pass and wondered why I felt so detached, wondered if I should get in the line to touch the disc. A little further into the church, you'll find a marble slab called the Stone of the Anointing. It's the same color as the peach and pink terrazzo floors, of the high school I attended 20 years ago. According to tradition, it held Jesus's body in the tomb. It's set into the floor, marked off by tall brass candle holders and big frosted glass lanterns embossed with gold crosses. I saw an old woman wearing a shawl over her head pressed through the crowd with force. She knelt at the stone and opened a plastic shopping bag, stacking little neon yellow crosses and tacky plastic rosaries on the marble. She prayed rapidly and mechanically, rubbing the stone with each cross before shoving it back into the plastic bag. The bag crinkled loudly. I have a butter block island in my kitchen. We leave it unfinished and use it as a cutting board to prepare area for cooking to prep area and prep area for cooking over time it gets stained with berries and vinegar or with the juice from a roast once a year or so i'll sand it down just a little to strip out the stains and leave it clean and smooth again i thought about that butcher block as i watched this lady rub a little plastic cross on the marble stone like she was trying to shave away something and take it with her. Still further into the church, you'll find the Aedicule. This is the site of Jesus' tomb and was once buried in a hillside. The Emperor Constantine ordered the hill removed and the tomb enclosed and protected within the church. Today you walk into a glorious gray rotunda surrounding a squat brown hut. The hut itself is in- adorned with gold and red velvet and brass candles. The line to enter the aedicule and see the tomb stood about eight people wide and wrapped all the way around the shrine. To get in, one had to wait an hour or more. All around, crowds shuffled past, guides chattered loudly through their little speakers. Person after person would try to see the tomb, standing on their tiptoes to peek over the crowd and catch a glimpse of the gilded room inside. Several people stood near the entrance, raised a selfie stick in the air, and snapped a photo. 
Some looked serious, as serious as one can look while holding something as ridiculous as a selfie stick. But most made typical selfie faces, wide open mouth smiles, heads tilted, arms around their companions. Some threw up peace signs, more than one made a duck face. The crowd in the line at the Aedicule would sometimes smile and wave as though there was nothing disjointed about taking selfies in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. One would think that standing in one of Christianity's most sacred sites would be a breathtaking, moving experience. But for me, it felt strange. I felt a sincere desire to connect to the place, to acknowledge the history and commemorate it while I was there. But I also felt distant, resistant. The touristy nature of the place is partly to blame, but something within me wanted to keep it at a distance. I'm sure anyone's visit here will feel disjointed. The crowd itself is disjointed. The heartbroken woman at Golgotha, the woman at the stone of the anointing, the teenager making a duck face at a selfie stick in front of the empty tomb. But there is also a gap between the kind of devotion this place invites in my own religious posture. I'm wired to resist, trained. For some the church of the church's visitors, the place remains enchanted. Those visitors enter with a sense of spiritual possibility that others do not. They are open to the possibility of sacred spaces and sacred objects. I enter with a sense of distance and suspicion. This isn't to say there isn't good reason for some of that suspicion. Even at my best and most spiritual moments, I wouldn't advocate trying to spiritually supercharge plastic crosses by rubbing them on a sacred marble stone. But it seems like somewhere between the superstitious world of supercharged neon crosses and the disenchanted world of selfie takers, there is a way of being that allows for spiritual possibilities, for God's presence, and for the possibility of sacred space. Unfortunately, my spiritual upbringing did not prepare me to live in that world. I grew up in the evangelical church and was raised on a steady diet of spectacle and hype. When I was six or seven, I was in a Christmas musical at a mega church in Houston. My memories of it are a little fuzzy, but I believe it was a Christmas through the years sort of thing, with each musical number representing how the holiday may have been celebrated in a given decade. They sang Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree for the 50s and I'll Be Home for Christmas for the 40s, all in vaguely decade-appropriate costumery. My number was set in the 60s. I wore white bell bottoms that had a triangle of silk polka-dotted fabric in the bells, a baggy orange satin tunic, and love beads. On the night we tried on our costumes, another kid dropped his pants in the toilet and tried to pretend like nothing happened. He just handed back dripping pants to the costumers. 
We sang and danced to Do Re Mi from The Sound of Music, which I believe is a cl- is as close to psychedelia as the Baptist music minister was willing to get. A lady named Sherry, who wore enough makeup to look like a rodeo clown, played Maria. At the dress rehearsal, they recorded her voice for the performance. She would be lip-singing. To my mind, this was a horrific lie, but convictions about artistic integrity from a six- or seven-year-old went unheard. I am not certain what long-term psychological trauma this all caused. A few months before this, I got baptized at a different Baptist megachurch in Houston. In my memories, this place shares the size and aesthetics of a convention center, massive, modern, and cold. The pastor who baptized me put on heavy rubber waders, fixed his hair in the mirror, slid a white robe over his shoulders, and fixed his hair again. He politely asked those of us getting baptized that we try not to splash his hair when we got in and out of the water. That same pastor now has his own church spread across several states where they show his sermons on big video screens. I hear they filmed him with red cameras, which cost as much as a house. He has a blog about pastor's fashion and endorsed men's spanks. He wrote a book about sex and spent a day and a night broadcasting interviews about it from a bed on the roof of his church. He also has rap videos on YouTubes. I'm not making any of this up. Later, we moved from Houston to New Albany, Indiana, and it wasn't long before I made it to the youth group. Though it was led by sincere, kind, and good-hearted people, it was also strange. Spectacle and hype were certainly its breath and bread. Weekly gatherings were punctuated by games like Chubby Bunny and Honey, If You Love Me, You'll Smile. The formal is innocuous enough. You'll stuff your face with marshmallows and attempt to say the phrase Chubby Bunny. The person who can fit the most marshmallows in their mouth and still get the words out wins. There was nearly always vomiting, and urban legends swirled about some kid who died while playing the game. The latter was slightly more sinister. In this game, if you're it, you have to approach a person of the opposite sex and say, Honey, if you love me, you'll smile. They must reply, Honey, I love you, but I just can't smile. You get three chances to make the person break by smiling or laughing, and then you must move on to someone else. Typically, winning was accomplished with techniques that bordered on sexual harassment. That wasn't the worst, though. The worst was Red Grass, a game we played at camp in northern Indiana. 30-gallon plastic trash cans were filled with a thick, overly concentrated mix of red Kool-Aid and giant straws placed in them. Teams were formed, and the first team to empty their Kool-Aid can by drinking or sucking and spitting all of the Kool-Aid from their can was the big winner. Mind you, all of this is all taking place in triple-digit summer heat. Kids sweating profusely, drank as much as they could, ran a short distance, and barfed in nearly fluorescent red sludge into the grass. 
red grass being more than just a clever name. Once they recovered, they returned to the trash can and repeat the cycle. By the end, the scene had a Jonestown massacre-like quality to it. Kids staggered around, dazed. Some lay in patches of dry grass heaving. The air was thick with the smell of fruit punch and the vinegary odor of vomit. The game was later banned. Like Chubby Bunny, rumors swirled that some kid died while playing it. Hype extended far beyond these games and into our spiritual experiences. At youth group camps and retreats, most of the speakers were young men in their 20s and 30s who, in hindsight, all reminded me of Dan Cook. I remember one conference that ended with a clip from the movie Glory. It was a scene before the last battle of the film where Matthew Broderick asks who will carry the flag if the standard bearer falls during a charge into battle. This was used as a metaphor. The flag of our faith has fallen, he said. Who will stand to carry it into the next generation? There was a pregnant pause, and then in the back of the room, a brave soul yelled, I will. Soon the whole auditorium rumbled with shuffling feet and the folding of heavy theater seats as kids all over the room stood and shouted, I will. It was moving. I think I teared up. The next year, as the same at the same conference, this gag was repeated. Only instead of glory, the video clip was, Oh, Captain, my captain, seen in Dead Poets Society. My friend Latchland learned over, leaned over and said, he's going to make us all stand up. Sure enough, after some set up, there was a pregnant pause and, oh, captain, my captain, shuffling feet. Everyone who hadn't attended the year before was deeply moved. The next year, it repeated again. Between these moments were countless others spent huddled in small groups, friends' homes, or cars where we talked more plainly and quietly about our faith. These moments weren't without depth or sincerity, but they were peripheral. They were in the margins. They came without much guidance or instruction. Rarely did someone sit down and talk to us about the daily mundane aspects of faith. It didn't fit the logic of everything else they had told us about faith. Being a Christian was too awesome to be ordinary. So I was trained to live from one pyrotechnic moment to the next and hyped up emotional mountain to another. My experience was tame compared to what many Christians have seen and experienced in churches. There were count examples of faith healers, snake handlers, and extreme charismatic happenings like holy laughter, holy barking, and more. A more recent oddity was the glory cloud manifestations that happened at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Over a period of several months during worship services at the church, a glitter cloud appeared in the air over the heads of the worshipers while they were singing, dancing, and crying out for God to appear. People reported seeing jewels show up on the carpet or even in their homes after they left the church. 
pilgrims made the journey to Bethel to see the glory cloud and enroll in their school of supernatural ministry. A friend of mine attended one of these services. As the cloud appeared at this particular service, it was accompanied by feathers, which folks naturally assumed were fallen, were angel feathers. My friend was watching a feather fall towards him when an ecstatic young girl pushed him out of the way, opened her arms to the sky, and caught the feather in her mouth. She ate it. You can watch scenes like this on YouTube. You can also see several videos that analyze the phenomenon, including folks who look at the stuff under a microscope. It turns out the dust from the glory clouds looks an awful lot like the kind of cosmetic body glitter favored by cheerleaders and strippers. It also turns out the, the clouds' point of entry into the room is near the church's HVAC vents. As Spinal Taps Nigel Tufnell once said, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. More to the point, there's a fine line between wanting to cult cultivate an emotionally transcendent experience and pumping stripper glitter into the air vents. And while religious hoaxes are as old as humanity itself, there is a thread that connects this one to red grass to emotionally manipulative church gatherings, and to every other hype and spectacle phenomenon in the church today. All are rooted in a deep cynicism. They reveal a loss of confidence in the practices that have formed and united the church for generations before. Practices rooted in word, prayer, and song. Habits that celebrate the conventional shared life of faith community. If we have no confidence that God is going to show up in these practices, then we have one mandate, make something happen. I don't think my experience is atypical. For many who grew up in North American evangelicalism, I have just described what I have just described should sound fairly normal. What was regular about church, regular in the sense of repeated regularly, was the way it strove for the heights. A good worship service involved emotional catarysts ending with tears and bold commitments. Ordinariness as a whole was shunned in favor of being radical, extreme, and so forth. I remember one church camp where the preacher rebuked this pattern of lunging from one mountaintop experience to the next. A steady diet of emotional highs was no way to live a faithful Christian life, he said. And yet, he preached this in the context where, over the course of a day, we were once again whipped into a frenzy, marched to an actual hilltop, and called to make big commitments. The irony is not unlike the scene at the end of PCU where the troublemakers on a college campus rebuke a politically correct mob for protesting everything. The mob responds by breaking out signs and marching, chanting, we're not going to protest. Mountaintop moments create their own normality. 
We learn to depend on them, and we feel starved when they're removed. We might find ourselves in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, unable to connect with the place. Where's the motivational speech? Where's the rock band? Who's going to help me feel something? The power of habit is in the way it tunes our body and soul to anticipate a return to the rhythm. We're primed for it. And when we're starved of it, we feel pangs of hunger. This way of thinking about our habits is even more interesting when compared with the ancient church. Historically, the church cultivated habits and disciplines that oriented people to the faith through the practice of liturgy, regularly praying the Psalms, reciting the Creed, celebrating the Lord's Supper, baptizing and catechizing converts, and the church calendar, Advent to Christmas, Lent to Easter, and many other feasts and celebration between. Many Christian churches have moved away from these rhythms of life, and not always for bad reasons. The last 150 years of Christianity in the West have been a strange cocktail of theological erosion, the slide into liberalism and reaction, the nervous hedging of fundamentalism. Some churches with good tradition, like those listed above weren't immune to theological erosion, and while their practices continued to display and proclaim the gospel, their core beliefs refuted it. Others threw the baby out with the bathwater, rejecting practices and traditions they associated with liberalism, empty traditions, and superstition. At the same time, revivalism was thriving. In place of the church's liturgy, revivalist revivalistic worship services consisted of lengthy period of singing and a sermon that called for repentance and recommitment. This formula worked. It led to many, many conversions and rededications, and in most corners of North America, evangelicalism. It's still the model for our modern worship services. The gap between These ways of gathering isn't just an issue for church leaders. It reveals something much deeper about the Christian life. The traditional way the church approached spiritual formation is embedded in those older practices. The movements of liturgy, the broad readings of the lectionary, the seasons of lament like Advent and Lent, The church immersed believers in a way of life that regularly rehearsed the gospel and taught them to cry out to God in the midst of suffering and disappointment. In in place of this, a revivalistic spirit that aims for knockout punches, worship gatherings, retreats, and conferences that hinge on big moments, big decisions, big commitments. But the need for hype crowds out are darkness, sadness, and limit. Pastors end up sounding like Margaret Cho's portrayal of Kim Jong on 30 Rock, declaring that as Christians, it's always sunny here all the time. 
Before we lay all the blame on pastors, let's at least ask whether the problem is one of supply or demand. Are church leaders emphasizing positivity and spectacle because they want to attract followers and sell them religious snake oil? Or are they emphasizing positivity and spectacle because that's what the church is demanding? I think it's a combination of both. Like the passengers on the train in Murder in the Orient Express, spoiler, spoiler alert, we all did it. We can't just blame leaders. We all live in search of big, cathartic moments. Chasing religious spectacles only makes sense in a disenchanted world. If we've primed ourselves to live in a world where God doesn't show up, then we have to figure out how to make something happen on our own. We need, to borrow Bart Simpson's description of contemporary worship, light, smoke, and taboo. Standing in the aticule, watching pilgrims pass by, feeling alien, I wondered how much has my sense of transcendence and understanding of the practice of Christianity been shackled to these cultural trappings? How far removed from ordinary life is it? Is it strange that I can be brought to tears when I'm in my church and someone plays a song describing the death of Jesus or the nativity, but when I stand in the actual places these events happened, I feel so awkward or resistant, so removed? I can critique the woman with the neon crosses all I want. It's easy to see how much she resembles the feather-eating girl standing below the glory cloud. But I also see how much she resembles me. I am just as culturally conditioned, just as hooked on spectacle and hype, which is to say, just as superstitious. There's a common thread between these experiences. All of our religious efforts grow from hearts that long for redemption, for transcendence, and that, most of all, long to connect with God. So we look for Him in enchanted objects, like plastic crosses or feathers from heaven, or we look for Him to meet us in the climactic moments of a worship service. More than anything, we're looking for some kind of assurance that God is still there and that he'll still show up for us in life and death. To find that assurance, we have to separate what we've become habituated to expect, mountaintop experiences of varying kinds, and what he promises, the quiet comfort of his real presence. In the scriptures, we see that he comes not in a storm, but in a still, small voice. Not in a conquering hero, hero, but a carpenter. Not a victorious tribe, but in an impoverished and persecuted church. The real wonder is that this is what we really want. The mountaintop experiences don't satisfy, but the presence of Jesus does, and his promise that he won't forsake us. He, his, he is as present when we're mowing the lawn or arguing with our boss as he is at an altar call or in our quiet moments of prayer. He's mysterious and hidden, and yet it's a core promise of the New Testament. God is with us. 
we'll need to learn to different differentiate our sense of that presence from the excitement that comes with a hyped up worship service. We'll need to discover that his presence is often much simpler, quieter, and more subtle than our experiences in church have trained us to believe. This isn't to say that joyful, static moments aren't important. We need them. We need moments when the sea parts, when the mountains smolder, and when the dead rise. But we also need God's presence in an ordinary way, in the steady guidance of a cloud by day and a fire by night. We need lamplight for our steps and the nearness of lowliness of a shepherd. And we need confidence in that presence when storms come and suffering leads up, leaves us weary and sad. The dark nights at bedsides and in hospitals, when the last thing that would comfort us is a rocking worship set with lasers and smoke. Only that kind of present presence is a ballast against suffering and doubt. Only that kind of presence can allow us to grow deep roots in a disenchanted world. It's a presence we come to know most intimately in the quietness of prayer and in the simplicity of God's word. A spirituality that doesn't teach us to pray in our darkest hours or doesn't teach us to listen to God's voice through scripture is going to leave us starving and searching for something more. In the days after my visit to the church, a tension opened up inside me. The longer I stayed in Jerusalem, the more ordinary the place became. These are streets like many city streets and people who are like any other, warm, human, broken. And yet, on a stone in the midst of it, the greatest mystery in creation took place. The Son of God hung and died for me, pouring out grace that was powerful enough to reconcile the whole world to its creator. He bled on a dull gray limestone rock. His body was covered in, sweet, in sweat and dust from these ordinary streets. It was not the gilded beauty of Jerusalem's holy places that caught my imagination and finally stirred my heart. It was its ordinariness. On our last day in Jerusalem, my wife and I returned to the Church of the Holy Speculature. We walked through the old city's narrow streets again, past the silks, the clouds of tobacco smoke, the rotating stands draped with rosaries and crosses and olive wood trinkets, back to the crowded courtyard and into the middle evil building. This time, though, we wandered back behind the shrine of Golgotha, down the steps into the chapel of St. Helena. St. Helena was the mother of the Emperor Constantine, and the chapel is one of the oldest remaining structures of the original 3rd century church. The stone walls along the steps are carved with primitive graffiti crosses, the work of medieval pilgrims. The floor is a glorious Byzantine mosaic, and the chapel's altar keeps an enshrined piece of the original cross, or so tradition holds. A guide passed through with a small group of tourists as we stood there looking at the mosaic floor. 
He pointed out the chapel's features, the floors, the relic, and the graffiti. Then he pointed to the limestone wall to our right, a raw gray-white rock face that was partially covered with thick plexiglass. This, of course, is also Golgotha, and this is one of the few sections of rock that was exposed. The crowd nodded, snapped a few photos, and moved on, leaving Sarah and me alone in the chapel. I was fixated on the rock face. Buddy Miller's song, Fall on the Rock, played in my head. I tried to wrap my mind around the fact that there, on that rock, God incarnate shed his blood. Not some abstract metaphorical rock, but this one, this piece of stone right in front of me. I walked over to the wall, feeling uncomfortable and strange as I looked at the rock face. Finally, I reached out and touched the stone. Nothing extraordinary happened as I stood there with my hand against the wall. I just closed my eyes and took a deep breath and felt the strangeness, strangeness of the world and the incomprehensibility of this place that enshrines death and resurrection and that draws pilgrims from the world over and has for almost 2,000 years. I thought about the quaking earth and torn curtain, the forsakenness of the sun and the emptiness of the tomb. I thought about bread and wine and body and blood and a church that proclaims this death until he returns. Never has hype or spectacle seemed more absurd. We, who needs a greater drama than death, resurrection, and scandalous grace? Poetry and art and a lifetime of prayer and reflection can only begin to explore this wild story, something we hope is true through the world's role though the world rolls its eyes and tries desperately to drain the magic of it out of it. I stood there, fingers pressed to a wall, worn smooth by hands of thousands of pilgrims, touching the rock where the most important thing in the world happened. My doubts were there too, circling like hungry sharks, ready to strike when my thoughts presented the slightest of openings. I breathed deep held still, and prayed, My God, it did happen. In a way, I feel like I've been leaning there ever since. Pathway 3, Bringing Scripture to Life I think much of our hunger from spectacle and hype comes from lack of imagination. To find ourselves captivated by the Christian life and captivated by the scripture requires an active mind and an engaged imagination. It's the imagination that brings this world to life. I've wondered if this is because of laziness. It's, it's much easier to keep people engaged with noise and lights, but I think it's mostly because of a lack of training and a lack of practice. Like learning to read or speak, we have to learn to imagine. It takes practice and it requires that we're willing to work with what we have at the beginning, a diminished imagination, and let it grow. The title of this pathway has a double meaning. It means first we want to reawaken our imagination to the Bible. We want to enter its world and see it as more 
than mere facts or words on a page. It means, second, that we want to bring it to our lives to fill our world with its words. Much that falls into the category of Bible study these days can serve to keep scripture at a distance. I've talked about this already a bit in chapter one. We autonomize scripture, breaking it down into component pieces and categories, but we struggle to see it as a whole. And if this is all we know of the Bible, it's no wonder we gravitate towards spectacle. Scripture itself remains lifeless and dead. But while the modern impulse is to study the Bible like one might study gypsy moths or cheese mold, previous generations treat the Bible as a living thing rather than merely being a text we illuminate with the tools of historical research and analysis and deconstruction. It can be a lamplight illuminating our world. To that end, I want to suggest a couple of practices that reorient our approach to the Bible, aiming at the imagination and the heart. For many Christians, these practices we feel at least a little strange because they invite us to approach the Bible in a much different way than we used to. Focus on this for our practice. Ignatian Prayer Ignatius of Loyola taught his followers to read the Gospels with an active imagination. Hear the story of Jesus healing a paralytic or talking with the woman at the well, and imagine yourself in the story encountering Jesus, hearing his healing words as if they were saying as if he were saying them to you. Hear it as if you were the paralytic or as if you were the, a bystander. Feel the heat of the sun, the weariness of a journey on a long road, the shame of sin and exposure, the judgment and condemnation from religious professionals, and imagine Jesus. What might he sound like? Does he touch you as he passes? Does he look you in the eyes? What do you hear? What do you feel? Scripture is living. It's meant to take root, growing and flowering in the heart and mind. Don't just know what the story says. Know how it feels. Explore what the characters in the story must have experienced when they encountered Jesus or saw the seas part or watched Lazarus scroll out of an empty tomb, picking gauze off his newly animated skin. The point is not to turn the Bible into a choose-your-own-adventure story, but to let the Bible speak with a richness we often deny it. How to practice it. This may sound obvious, but go somewhere where you can avoid interruption. Set a timer. This allows you not to worry about how long you should go or when you're done. Put your phone on Do Not Disturb and put your timer out of view. When the bell rings, you're done. Initially, you should aim small, just a few minutes, say three to five. But as you get more comfortable with it, add a few minutes at a time. Practices like this should have a beginning, middle, and end. A routine that your mind and body learn and can easily step into. Begin by taking a moment to calm down your mind and body. 
Sit in a chair or kneel on the floor and open your Bible. Pray a short breath prayer for a few times. Take a short passage from one of the Gospels, such as any of the stories in Matthew 8. Read the passage a couple of times and allow your imagination to start filling in the details. The scenery, the weather, the sounds in the background, the smell of the sea, or less pleasant, the smell of a leprous beggar. Imagine the nervous expression on the face of the centurion. After a couple of readings, let your mind wander into that world. Focus on senses, sight, smell, sound, touch, taste. When the timer goes off, take another moment to pray and reflect. What struck you? What part of the story might be worth coming back to later that day? This practice gets richer with repetition. You're training your mind to imagine, and in doing so, you're liberating yourself from the need for spectacle and external stimulation. Praying the Psalms. The second practice can help, that can help the Bible enter our lives is praying the Psalms. The monastic tradition of chanting through the Psalms in regular rhythms throughout the day provides a sharp contrast to our world of on-demand everything, where streaming content can immediately satisfy our appetites, and next-day or same-day delivery provides access to everything from books to clothes to dog houses. In the practice of praying the hours, as Benedictine sister Joan Chittister once put it, we don't pray because we feel like it, and we don't even pray because of what we hope to get out of it. Communion with God or peace for our souls. Instead, we pray because the bells ring. The bell rings. We pray because we've chosen to orient our life around prayer and we submit ourselves wholly to that life. Rather than our spiritual life being reactive, constantly responding to life's circumstances, this way of life is a steady rhythm and an anchor. Rather than trying to find words to express whatever we might be experiencing, we pray the scriptures and try to find our lives in those words. There are many ways to adapt this practice in our ordinary life. To start, one might simply adopt what Donald Whitney calls the psalm of the day. In this method, you take whatever day of the month it is and add 30 to it four times. So if it's the first day of the month, your psalms are 131, 61, 91, and 121. Open your Bible to the first psalm on the list and start reading. If it doesn't seem to speak to where you are at that time, jump to the next one, and so on, until you find a psalm that feels like an invitation. Then simply let the words of the psalm guide your prayers. How to practice it. Like the Ignatian prayer method described above, I think having an intentional beginning, middle, and end helps to make something like this a habit. So, as you described above, set a timer, start with a few breath prayers to calm your mind and body and begin praying the psalm. I love the way that Dr. Whitney simplifies this kind of prayer. 
Wherever your mind goes as you read and pray, let it go. Offer those thoughts up to God. If the word Cyprus shows up and you are reminded of a friend named Cyprus, pray for Cyprus. That's not a, there's not a right and a wrong way to practice this kind of prayer. This isn't the time or place to think too hard about the psalm itself, but rather to let the psalm be your guide. You're bringing your life into the text and through the text to God. Once either of those practices becomes a habit, you might consider practicing it a few times. A longer meditation in the morning and perhaps a short meditation in the evening or at lunchtime, wherever you can make the space. Don't feel like you have to go for hours and hours to make it meaningful. Instead, think of it like the bells at a monastery, a break in the current of your day that calls your mind and heart back to the kingdom of God and an invitation to reframe the day in light of that kingdom. All it takes is a few minutes. Set a reminder on a clock or a smartphone for 11.30 in the morning or for 8 o'clock at night, and when you hear the bell, pray. These two practices train us to bring our imaginations and our hearts into the text. Ignatian prayer helps us connect to the scripture as a story and to its characters as real, ordinary people. Praying the Psalms gives us language to pray wholehearted and earthly prayers with a wide and deep emotional range. Together, they help us experience the Bible not as a textbook and not as a corpse, but as a living, breathing words. In practicing these types of prayer, we not only lose our taste for distraction-filled spectacles, we might just help to re-enchant our world.